Hey everyone, welcome to the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Bondi, and I did something super personal today. In this podcast, it's really going to be exploring what intentional well-being means. And as a black woman, intentional well-being is almost a loaded phrase. How can I be intentional in how I show up in the world? And investing in my own well-being is important, right? Because if I don't invest in my own well-being, I can't be here for anyone else. So today, I'm letting you into my personal life with our inaugural podcast with my therapist, Megan Watson. Megan Watson is a registered psychotherapist who focuses on supporting people, who are experiencing struggles with their moods, anxiety, eating disorders, which is a big one because we don't see a lot of black women or black therapists in the eating disorder space. That's something that I experienced. Uh, Also, uh, she works with body image, which is right up my alley. And what I love about working with Megan is she's warm and she's thoughtful and she's the best. And this is the first time in my life that I've had a black woman as a therapist, as a psychotherapist. And I believe in therapy, let me tell you. Uh, She's also from the same place I'm from. She's uh, from Barbados. She has a master's in mental health counseling and behavioral medicine from Boston University School of Medicine. And she's worked as a therapist, both in the US and Canada for the past six years. What I love about Megan is she's experienced working with anxiety disorders, um, the LGBTQIA community. She's helped with gender affirming healthcare, uh, relational psych- uh, psychotherapy, and treating PTSD. So I love that she is a relational cultural therapist driven by connection and community. And her And she's so authentic. So I feel like she's the perfect person to kick off this podcast. So without further ado, let me introduce you to one of the people that helps keep me grounded in this space, my therapist, and dare I say my friend, Megan Watson. Hey, girl. Hey. (laughs) I'm so glad to be here. I mean, we get to see each other professionally because of the work that we do, but it is just so lovely to see you shine and to see all the work that you're doing, uplifting the community and really just teaching people about how to be well. It's really inspiring. I'm humbled. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I am so thrilled to have found you in my life. Uh, we started talking kind of just really casually over Instagram. I think mm-hmm. I was over Instagram and mm-hmm. uh, then I had noticed that you were local to me, meaning that you were in Canada <laughs> and in the front <laughs> I reside in, not necessarily like down the street. And uh, I had been wanting to come back to therapy for quite some time. I've been in therapy on and off. Uh, since my uh, early 20s. Um, I was mm-hmm. in my late, my late teens, early 20s. And I find that it's been this incredible place for me to unpack my feelings, for me to get context around, uh, you know, my past in order to mm. my future. Uh, it's helped me in my marriage. I've been to marriage counseling. I really believe in therapy. And I know that that's not always the case for, for people who look like us, like therapy. Yep. Um, 
is actually looked down upon. And we'll talk a little bit about that in the podcast. But before we get before we go anywhere, I want to I'm asking everybody this question on the podcast to you. What is the difference between wellness and well-being? That is such a great question. And, you know, thinking about that really makes me want to delineate between wellness is a practice, well-being is a state. And well-being is how you feel, but wellness is what you do. And Mm. so wellness and well-being are super subjective you know one person's ideal state of being and one person's wellness practice might be torture to another person right mm-hmm. um and you know one person's uh way of showing up in their life and what that means for them in terms of their wellness practice and, and what it means to be well might be another person's idea of a really bad time so i think you know, thinking about wellness and well-being is they're kind of two sides of the same coin, right? Wellness is really, you know, the practice, the commitment, the the doing, and well-being is the feeling, the experiencing, the state of mind um, and state of body and state of spirit that you reach when you commit to and you focus on those wellness practices. I love that. Wow. I've really been wrestling with those two things because I, when I was thinking about naming this podcast and what it was I wanted to dive into, I had this kind of uh, friction or I got stuck in the idea of wellness because I've noticed um, in the world today, wellness has really been um, a practice that we see primarily white folks um, Mm -hmm. have access to. Right. So that when I talk about self-care in the beginning of this whole reimagining self-care for ourselves, there was a lot of this. Well, I go for a massage or I go get my nails done or, you know, I'm going on vacation or I'm taking a yoga retreat. And I think that's wonderful. These are all Mm -hmm. wellness practices. Well, what if you don't have access to any of those things? So what does wellness look like if you're not if you don't have a lot of disposable income or if you don't have access to these, you know, these things that you want to do. And so I started preaching the idea of wellness or well-being being individual things that you can do for yourself that um that that are just everyday events that relieve stress in your life. So that's my well, like my self-care, I guess, um, definition for people. So right. today I went grocery shopping. I don't really like grocery shopping. It and lately it hurts my feelings because everything in the grocery store is more expensive due to inflation and the pandemic and all those things. So yep. my car, I took a picture, I haven't posted it, but I took a picture of my trunk with my groceries and I go, self-care day 101 on Monday. This is intentional self-care, um, but it's not necessarily joyful self-care. So there are these two things in my mind where okay, I'm being intentional about this because I need to eat, I need to feed my family, and this is part of our self-care routine, and it's intentional, but I would have way more joy standing on my grass with my um, shoes off, you know, maybe looking at my garden. So that to (laughs) me is like enjoyable self-care, and this is intentional self-care, something I have to do that's going to provide me less stress later on, um, but something I don't really like doing. I love the use of the word intentional. Because I think, you know, I've said this before, 
but intention creates space. Mm. Intention drives purpose. And so when we want to be intentional about something, we need to be mindful of it. But mindfulness does not preclude joy, acceptance, <laughs> agreeableness. It just means knowledge, right? Mm. And so I think becoming more aware and becoming more intentional and purpose-driven in our wellness is really important. But, you know, touching on that self-care piece, self-care is a huge part of wellness, but I think wellness can even be you know, fulfilling relationships with your loved ones. Mm. Wellness can be, you know, um, living in a safe and comfortable environment, you know, Mm. making sure that, you know, you have a roof over your head or at least someone um, that you trust to Mm. talk about, you know, the hard things in your life. And so I think self-care is underneath the wellness umbrella, but I think for a lot of people, you're right. Self-care is inaccessible because we've tacked it on to capitalism. Yeah. And, you know, when we put self-care as this thing you need to buy or this thing that is um, connected to access and privilege and, and power, um, it becomes looped into this very supremacist notion of um, who gets to access wellness, who gets mm. to be well, and mm. who deserves it. And that's problematic for a lot of reasons. But, you know, you're right. Self-care can be super simple. I think of self-care as daily hygiene. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Did you balance your budget this month? Did you prepare your tax documents? Have you cleaned out the fridge? You know, <laughs> those all of those things I just stuck my tongue out are intentional. You know what I mean? <laughs> Cleaning out the fridge is not on my list of things I love to do, but yeah, but they are self-care things. I often talk about brushing and flossing your teeth. That was yeah. one self-care or well, well-being habit that I took on during the pandemic is my excuse prior to the pandemic was I don't have time to floss my teeth. I can, you know, I got to get to bed or I got to get where I'm going or whatever. And then I thought, now I'm not actually going anywhere except downstairs to flip on my computer so I can take the extra 30 seconds or minute. And that's all it is. It's like a minute to floss your teeth. And I always thought to myself, I made a big deal about nothing and it's going to help me keep my teeth. It's almost like putting that well-being or that wellness in the bank for a future withdrawal, right? I think about that when I'm running. Love that. Right? I, this is just a new thing that's been ru- ruminating in my head when I'm running and I'm not having a particularly fun time. Like so, sometimes I'm out there and I'm living my best life. And other times I'm out there, I'm like, why do I do this? Like, why? Am I this? <laughs> and then I hear that little voice in our head saying, you know, I have a history. Uh, my family has a history of heart disease and diabetes and cancer and all the things. And these are little wellness or well-being or self-care that I'm putting in the bank for later. So that if I take Mm. care of my heart now, even if I do get heart disease, maybe it'll be minimized. Maybe it won't be as, you know, pronounced Mm -hmm. or as, you know, serious as if I didn't do any of this at all. So I actually Mm -hmm. look at it. I look at intentional movement, or intentional self-care, things I don't always love to do, but will lead to a a better outcome later as banking this practice for later. I think it's really hard to do that for a lot of people because activities of daily living can be so burdensome Mm. when the 
the reasons why you need to do them are rooted in burnout, stress, mm-hmm. yeah. and like intergenerational, like unwell, like feeling Trauma. intergenerational effects of being unwell. Right. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You know, my yeah. father has um, uh, chronic health conditions. My grandfather had chronic health conditions and, you know, it's a huge piece of, you know, at least Caribbean culture. I know yeah. Barbados is a huge place um, where I'm from, where we have, it's like the diabetes, one of the diabetes capitals of the world. And so in many ways, you know, caring for our health is like a public health issue yeah. as well as, you know, navigating, you know, is this the, is this way of showing up for myself, this small decision that I can make today, you know, meaningful for me in the future, but also meaningful for generations in the future? Will they see, will my children see me practicing these habits and therefore ameliorate some of these conditions later on? You know, will I get to see the next 20, 30, 50 years if I make these small decisions today? And that's a really burdensome and challenging um, cross to bear for a lot of people, specifically for, for Black families and Black individuals, because there's so much that we're dealing with already. All the time. Yeah, all the time. And I also was very thoughtful around heart disease uh, because I know the statistics from uh, from the American, the Journal of American Medicine, JAMA anyway, I can't remember Mm -hmm. how the acronym works. And I saw this statistic maybe three or four years ago. Uh, Everything is skewed with uh, with the pandemic. Was it two years ago? Was it four years ago? Who knows? Um, Where they had looked at the statistics of women who get heart disease in America and the statistics for black women or women of African descent was much higher and much higher by quite a bit. And that shook me because it was just around the time of um, the new year where you get all the worst statistics and people are waving their fingers at you saying, you know, this is your fault. This is your problem. Let's get it fixed. And what really bothered me is I read, I reached out to a friend of mine who's an epidemiologist and him and I had had this conversation that, you know, the increase in heart disease in African-American populations isn't solely the fault of people of African descent. There are a lot of things that play in the ability to get access to healthcare, um, the amount of stress that people of color uh, and particularly black people walk through the world with on a daily basis. Like mm-hmm. we talk about things like post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, the things that black folks and people of color in a white supremacist society encounter every single day is not post-traumatic stress. It's ongoing traumatic stress. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Of uh, microaggressions or macroaggressions or hypervigilance or, you know, or just, you know, running into somebody who feels the need to police your body in some kind of way. And you can't tell me that doesn't contribute that added stress of walking through the world in this identity in a racialized identity does not add to the stress that would increase our, um, our incidence of heart disease, yet we are solely blamed for correcting mm-hmm. that problem. It's a systemic problem, in my opinion, if it affects 60 to 80% of the uh, of people of uh, African descent, it's not a coincidence and it can't only be our diet and it can't only be 
you know, um, our individual problem. This has to be systemic. And I get really annoyed at the idea that the health and wellness industry likes to point the finger back at us, claiming that we're not doing the right things when A, we might not have access, or B, Mm -hmm. we live in such a stressed out um, existence that even if we were doing all the things, it's not necessarily going to change our outcome. You're absolutely right. But I think, you know, there's a word there that needs to be kind of amplified and highlighted industry. Yeah. Yeah. It is way more profitable and beneficial for uh, individuals of African descent, black individuals, black women to take individual responsibility for their health concerns, chronic concerns that may be exacerbated by current trauma, racial trauma, ongoing microaggressive behavior, um, just living in a world where you're constantly needing to justify your existence and to prove your value. Um, it's way more profitable to be the individual saying like, well, what can I do? What can I purchase? What can I buy? What can I consume to, to make this better? And so unbeknownst to all of us, we are participating mm. in a system that directly benefits from us feeling like we don't do enough mm. to make sure that we are well. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I would say to anyone listening is that, you know, if this is blowing your mind or, you know, you're beginning to unlearn some of these practices, you know, take a deep breath and, and recognize that, you know, it is not your individual responsibility to change the world. It's not mm-hmm. your fault, but as DBT says, it is our problem. And Mm -hmm. so finding ways to show up for your community, um, finding ways to spread awareness, finding ways to talk about and make small changes outside of things that you need to purchase or to consume or to engage with in an an industry sense, in the health and wellness industry sense, because health health and wellness begins where you are Mm -hmm. and it begins in the mind. Um, is a really empowering act, right? Can we be creative about how we do that? Absolutely. And absolutely. And and I love the, I love what you said around. It's not, it's not our responsibility. Like we pick up the, especially black women, we have been trained to pick up the mantle of the world, right? We have been trained Mm -hmm. to look after everybody all the time. And it's ingrained from us from the time of enslavement, where we were looking after children, where we were looking after you know, uh, households or, or, or whatever. And a friend of mine said something really interesting. Uh, Teresa Tem, she's a, she's a pastor, I believe. And she said on, um, on a video clip that I shared on my page a while ago, for a lot of us, our worth is in our work. And so mm. constantly pick up the work because that's where we get our worth. And that's something that we've been trained to do, right? That our that our worth is in our work. And I think it really dovetails nicely with, with what you said um, around this idea of constantly, you know, being responsible for our communities. That's kind of the mantle of the, of the Black woman that we're here and that we're strong. And quite frankly, I'm tired of it. Like I can keep, you can keep your resilience, <laughs> you can keep your strong Black woman trope because it doesn't allow for us to be soft or vulnerable or ask for help. And I, I think that's problematic in, in 
seeking well-being as an individual if you're always expected to um, be the strong one, the one that speaks up, the one that saves everybody, because that's how we've been trained. I completely agree. Mm, I completely agree. (laughs) It's a tough one. So I want to just pivot a little bit here. I want to tell, I want you to tell me how you got involved in the work that you're involved in. Like what brought you to the path of being a, a counselor, a psychotherapist? Like I so very rarely see um, black women, black men, people of color within this um, modality. Like I, when I found out that not only you're a black woman, but you're from, we're from the same place, right? From Barbados. I was like, finally, I'm going to get to talk to a counselor who's going to understand my culture and and it's going to understand what's not going to fly because my entire life, I've always had either a woman, a white woman or a white man be my therapist. So how is, how did you come to do this work? And do you see this, this industry changing at all? That's a great question. Um, you know, I came into this work by, by true, honest experience, you know, um, I grew up in Barbados and I lived there until I was about 16. I ended up moving away to finish high school on my own. And from there, I've just been traveling and and going from visa to visa and <laughs> and going from country to country, kind of hoping and praying that I'll find a place to settle. And I ended up returning back to Canada uh, two years ago and finally getting my permanent residency. So I have a home <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, a wanderer, right? I'm not just a, a nomad living from visa to visa, hoping right. for the best. Um, yeah. But you know, growing up, I think most Caribbean people can really resonate. Um, and, and most people too, right. Um, who have maybe experienced, um, invalidating family structures and family environments, um, can relate to feeling really unheard Mm. and feeling like, you know, your feelings don't have a space. There's not a lot of room for who you truly are. And I was a weird kid. I was super, super weird. I love that you I was super weird. <laughs> I mean, I was into like, I was kind of a goth, like a little bit of a scene kid. I wore like black lipstick at times. It was just like very wow. counter to the lifestyle and the way of living in Barbados. You know, it's very beachy, sunny. Yeah. Everyone's kind of like, you know, happy. Yeah. <laughs> like it's very chill. And here I am, you know, wearing Converse oh. and like, straightening my bangs. (laughs) So I think, you know, I I had a, I laugh now, but it was really painful childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And my parents gave me everything that they possibly could. I didn't, I couldn't have asked for more, Um, but there was a lot of pain and I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. So my, I remember this very, very clearly. I think I was sitting at my desk um, in my childhood bedroom and I wrote down in a journal, I don't want anybody else to feel like this. Mm. And I didn't have access to therapy at the time, but 
I knew from television and I knew from uh, media that there were at the time I was like white ladies that do yeah. <laughs> these things. And I didn't really, I don't think I had the mindfulness as a teenager then to say like, oh, I'm not able to do it. I kind of just naively you know, said, I'm, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to help people. I want to help kids. So I originally wanted to be a child psychologist. Um, but I ended up kind of turning to psychology and, and turning to psychotherapy as a tool to understand my own past. And then ultimately, once I had begun my journey of healing and learning, and I'm still on this journey, right. It's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, I really started to divert my attention into uplifting the community and and making space for others to do that healing and growing work. And, you know, the second part of your question is, do I see this field changing? And yes, I do. I think even just in the past two years, right. um, I've seen it really explode. When I started my private practice, I was one of the very few on psychology today that uh, were black and um, I'm an eating disorder trained therapist. So I still don't know of a single other (laughs) eating disorder trained black therapist, black female therapist. And I get asked daily Mm. um, about this and, you know, I knew the faces on those directories and those listings by heart. I went through hundreds of pages trying to find, you know, other black therapists to connect with. And I, I kind of knew who was out there and there, you know, I could count on two hands at the time (laughs) who it was. And since the pandemic, you know, I've really seen a lot of black women empower themselves to leave, you know, maybe the institutions and the hospitals and to get back into the community and to start, you know, opening up shop and saying, Hey, you know, I'm here. Um, It's safe. And here's a place that you can seek refuge. You can seek connection and you can grow while not necessarily feeling like you have to educate, teach, or train your own therapist on how to show up for you and how to be the person that you need. And I think even just that is mind blowing and um, just so empowering for people to not have to do the work to show someone else how they need to be cared for, how they need to be supported and how they need to feel safe, what they need to feel safe. I think that's, yeah, that's amazing. I often question, you know, everything is, I do everything in retrospect. You know, I really credit um, my my psychotherapist uh, when I was in my early twenties and having a lot of difficulty for helping me like just assess my feelings and, and work through some stuff and give me some, uh, some coping skills. But sometimes when I look back at uh, conversations in my self-study, in my reflection, whenever I do these things, I slip back into my past. Sometimes when I haven't resolved something and I think to myself, I slip back into that situation, handle it the way I want to handle it now so that I can like put it to bed and move on. Right. Even if it's not happening in the real, in real life, I sometimes play these games And sometimes I thought with a few of the people I had spoke with in my past that therapists who aren't culturally aware and haven't had any training 
sometimes teach us as people of color and as black people, how to just assimilate with white supremacy, like the things yep. you, teaching you how to, you know, go along and get along. And um, I really, I'm really over that. I'm hoping that the therapy world is shifting now that, mm-hmm. we're not, you know, looking at a homogeneous population that doesn't understand um, white supremacy and uh, internalized oppression and all those things that we as uh, Black folks and people of color take on in order to cope in a world, like you said, that constantly has us proving our humanity or begging for our humanity. And that sometimes therapy is just another tool of that oppression to teach you how to just manage that instead mm-hmm. of trying to push back against it. And um, a couple of days ago, I had a really interesting conversation with like, I call her my pseudo psychotherapist, uh, uh, Dr. <laughs> Parker. Um, back in the day, I, I would, I would be putting things up on my Facebook page that were really, uh, de- you know, depressing or upsetting or whatever. And she would text me and go, Hmm, I saw your Facebook today. Can you give me a call? I need to talk to you quickly. And I'd be like, uh, sounds like a therapist. <laughs> your page and I'm a little concerned. Can you give me a call when you get a minute? And, uh, you know, just having that voice. And she was one of the first people I ever saw that was a a black woman that was doing this work. So, you know, I'm always curious as to why in, in the black community and you and I know in the, in the West Indian community, there's a lot of resistance to seeking help around, mental health issues. It's almost like a, almost like a badge of shame often. Um, and I'm going to share this and I've told people before, so, um, you know, she's not going to hear the podcast, but, um, this idea, like my mom had that you just need to have like demons cast out of you. Like you just mm-hmm. need to find Jesus. Um, you know, I say, I say find Jesus and maybe Jesus will tell you to go to therapy. Like I, just, right? he would, right. I think, yeah, you know, I'm here for you, but I'm also going to send you in the direction of somebody that you can talk to one-on-one face-to-face all the time, just to give you some clarity. What's the resistance you think? You know, I think you named it. It's shame. Mm. Um, and it's also guilt, right? Yeah. You know, um, there's a lot of narratives wrapped into uh, spirituality. Even, you know, you mentioned your mom having this, uh, sensibility and this belief that it really is just the demons needed to be cast out. And there's a lot of spiritual narratives that get really twisted on the need for suffering in order to seek salvation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this idea that we need to labor before we can rest, that we need to work before we can slow down and that we need to deserve spaces in which we feel seen, heard and feel belonging in. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of West Indians and a lot of black folk, um, you know, we've been working our whole lives and there's not a lot of space for self-care. I remember I mentioned self-care to my own family and I think, you know, my parents actually laughed. Like they were, they were like, <laughs> what, what is that? It literally, they said, like, you know, what is that? Like, oh, you know, okay, that's cute. Self-care as if we have time for that. For that. As if you deserve that. Keep it moving. Right. right? Yeah. And so I think, you know, it's not just shame um, around, you know, 
oh, I'm, I'm feeling these things and I don't even know if there's a safe space for me to talk about it. I don't even know if there's um, someone who will be able to hold space for these things that I am so ashamed of, that I'm so worried about. But it's also mm-hmm. this guilt, you know, who am I to deserve a safe place to talk about these things? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I haven't done enough. It's, you know, always the next thing to do. And so I see that a lot in the people that I meet with for therapy. It's, you know, internalized shame around what they're feeling, um, whether their relationship is, you know, quote unquote, good, bad, or everything in between, Um, you know, shame and and guilt about um, not really loving the way that they were raised. You know, I love my parents. I care so much about them, but, and why am I saying all these bad things in therapy? You know, I'm, I'm airing out family secrets and yeah breaking cycles, um, and showing up in therapy as someone who wants to make changes in their lives. It's a requirement almost for you to lean into that shame and to, to see what questions that shame is, is asking you what needs to be healed, what needs to be fixed, what needs to be, uh, eliminated. And when you can answer the questions that shame is poking and prodding you to, to hide and to conceal, you can start to address it with, you know, here's this word again, intention. Um, you can start to be purposeful about it and to allow yourself to feel without allowing these narratives around, I don't deserve this. Um, I'm not good enough. I'm unlovable. This is useless. This is unhelpful. And really just asking yourself more questions about like, what do I need? What would make the difference for me today? How do I feel safe in this moment? To with whom do I feel safe with? And how do I nurture those connections and those relationships to make my life feel more meaningful for me in the moment? Mm, that's great. And that is great advice. That is, that is that, that, <laughs> that brightness. Like, I hope that those words encourage people who have been nervous. Like, what would you say to somebody, especially somebody who's feeling this trepidation around sharing family secrets? Because a lot of us are, are, you know, are raised myself in particular, what goes on in this house stays in this house. And, you know, you don't kind of talk about it kind of thing, you kind of raised that way. What would you say to somebody who's like a little trepidatious about going to therapy or, you know, worried about sharing that, that part mm-hmm. of their vulnerable selves? I think, you know, I would direct them to, you know, the fact that they, they have the words already, the words are in their mind. It's now you have to deal with, what do you think the consequences of you saying that out loud are? Wow. You know, do you think that you will stop tolerating things? Do you think that you will stop accepting things that are harmful for you when you speak that out loud? Sometimes people avoid therapy because they know that the change they seek is on the other side of that disclosure. Mm-hmm. and yep. they're afraid of the consequences of what that might mean for them. They're not ready for the conflict resolution or the discord that comes with setting boundaries and, you know, making sure that your needs are met. That's really, really hard, especially when there are people in your family and your life who, 
um, are really, really dedicated to making you feel bad for mm. having those needs yeah. and also kind of shaming you for, for setting those limits in the first place. And then the second and very, very important thing that I would say to someone is your therapy and your relationship with your therapist is sacred. Mm. I treat that as a gift to be able to hold space and to recognize the, the scariness of what it means to be honest with someone about the things that you don't talk about with anybody at all. And there are regulations, there are laws, there are rules, there are, you know, things in place to protect you from those secrets ever leaving the sanctity of your therapist's office. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are misinformed about um, therapy or have had experience with unethical and harmful therapists who use their information in very problematic ways and don't respect the space that they hold with their clients. I'm not saying that's every therapist. I mean, right. it's definitely not, but yeah, they're definitely not everyone comes into this profession with great intentions. And, you know, I think a lot of people who maybe tried something before or said, you know, last time I spoke to someone or last time I even alluded to this, they, you know, belittled me or they, you know, were condescending or, you know, they told someone else. And I would just say, you know, you have rights. Mm -hmm. And it is our responsibility as therapists to make sure that your health information is safe, secure, um, and, you know, is treated with the, the respect that it deserves. I appreciate that. I am a wholeheartedly for everybody getting therapy. I'm a big fan of it being uh, part of our national healthcare system, and, and in Canada, it is. Uh, and if you're lucky enough to have an employer that has like extended benefits, you can often, uh, you know, have coverage that way. But it really should be something that is accessible to most of us or all of us. And I think removing that stigma of going to therapy and the continuing uh, of the culture to talk about mental health mm -hmm. in the same way we talk about physical health is really important because I don't think we would be having these same kind of conversations like 10 years ago. And I shared the story with you in our therapy when I was 16 years old and I've shared this story on Instagram. Uh, I had given up on life and had tried to end my life at 16. And, uh, my parents, uh, prior to that happening, I asked my parents if I could go talk to somebody because I was feeling heavy and I was feeling scared. Mm -hmm. and things. And my mother, who had been a nurse at the time for like 25 years, gave me the speech about how therapists are just as messed up as you and they can't help you anyway. And, you know, you're not going to bring shame on this family by going to therapy, which seems like a really bizarre. This is the 80s, though. Mm -hmm. A really bizarre idea, right? This is, you know the eighties. Yeah. The late eighties, I would say this is a really, you know, we're not going to tolerate this. You don't get to go. And then it resulted in me, you know, having a very serious event mm -hmm. and then them being angry about me having this event, had they given me the opportunity to go to therapy, I'm pretty sure the event wouldn't have happened. But even after I tried to kill myself and was unsuccessful, uh, my parents still wouldn't let me go to therapy. And my mother was mortified uh, 
uh, because she was a nurse and I was taken to the emergency room of the hospital that she works at. Right. So it was going to inevitably trickle back to her, her, um, yeah, her coworkers. And then she was going to be, you know, either the object of ridicule or the object of pity and neither of those things that she want. And I just think Mm -hmm. if you, you know, if you care about the well-being of your child, none of these things should matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said this to you when you shared this with me then, and I'm going to say it again now. I'm glad you're here. Oh, thank you. So am I. So am I. So am I. I just, I'm grateful uh, that I wasn't successful because um, clearly I had some things to do and clearly I had some life to live. And uh, that's right. Right. <laughs> so I had some stuff to do. I life to live. And it was, it's been really great. And I've been like hypersensitive around my children. Um, given that my oldest son is now at the same age I was when I, um, when I had this episode and I know he's, you know, the pandemic has made everybody's life harder. Uh, and he's not getting to have the quintessential, you know, high school mm-hmm. experience. His whole high school has been sitting at his desk in his room for the most part. And only very recently, because my kids are both vaccinated now, have they been going out in the world? You mm-hmm. know, prior, I was letting them hang out with their friends here and there because I thought their mental health is important. And seeing your friends on screen isn't the same as kicking a soccer ball or playing basketball on the court or, you know, riding your bike around the neighborhood. It's not the same. So I, you know, I was like, I'm okay with your friends coming over if their parents are okay. And we'll just make sure your friends are in our bubble. Like we'll choose Mm -hmm. what our bubble is and we'll just make sure they're all being really mindful. And I had a really big heart to heart with my son um, a couple of weeks ago when he was feeling a little blue. And I said to him, I want you to know that I am always on your side, no matter what. And I brought up, you know, if you're feeling bad, you can go talk to somebody. Dad has gone to talk to somebody. I've gone to talk to somebody. Um, Aunt Judy talks to somebody, you know, Uncle Sean, we've all really embraced talking to people in there. If you feel you need to, and he had no idea what it was. Like, he's like, what does that mean? I go, like, if you don't want to talk to dad and I, and you want to go and be really honest with somebody else and, you can lay it on the line. And I know as as your mom, I'm, I'm far from perfect in this mothering thing. And I, you don't have to feel bad about throwing me under the bus because I kind of expect it. Like mm-hmm. nobody can be perfect, right? I figure everybody's kid's going to go to therapy and complain about their parents because I just think that's the way it's going to be. And I'm okay with that. Um, as long as you're out there telling your therapist whatever you need to tell them. And if I'm, you know, when I'm 60 or suddenly you come back and tell me that time you didn't let me do that thing. I'm I'm okay. I'm here for it. I'm ready for it. I'm grounded in it. And I will apologize and do the things that I need to do because I want you to have the absolute opposite experience of what I had. And I always tell my sons, even if I'm angry at you, even if we don't agree on something, I am always on your side. I am not Mm. the enemy. I am always, always here for you. And there's nothing you can say or do that's going to make me love you any less. And if you need help, you just tell me because I, I, this is my job. I want to do it for you so that we really, so I'm hoping that that line of communication is really open and the same way you wrote in your diary and said, I never want anybody to feel this way. I feel the exact same way about my sons. I want to be that open parent. Um, that makes them feel like, okay, you know, I can go to there mm-hmm. and call my mom a bitch or whatever. And that's okay. Like, <laughs> I'm down. I understand. <laughs> okay. Right. You know what I mean? And that, like I said to him, we're not always going to agree. We're not always going to get along, but I'm always on your side, no matter what. So what an exhale for them to have that unconditional support from you. 
Always, always. I want, I, like you said, I want to break the cycle. I want to talk about your evolution in the uh, psychotherapy world because you have your own practice. I do. Yes. Which I think you got, you all are going to get to see like a little glimpse of, of Megan, you probably, you know, and if she feels comfortable sharing her uh, Instagram later, we'll share that. And you can kind of see the work that she's doing. You are a very mature old soul. Because when I talk to you, I think I'm talking to somebody my own age. But quite frankly, (laughs) Megan is young enough to be my daughter. So, true story. just call it guilty (laughs) let's just call it but you I feel like you you lived a long time and you've had this really incredible experience that you can draw on and that paralyzed parallels my life so well but you you have like done a wonderful thing having this practice and I want to I want to know what inspired you to have a practice I don't see a lot of black women in leadership roles within the industry Mm. that you're in and you've just kind of stepped into it. I'd like to hear a little bit about, about how that came to be. Well, it's a bit of a journey. And, you know, I think I talk about this in an article that I just wrote for my, my blog, a therapist perspective. And in it, I kind of detail um, a little bit of my journey and how, when I first started in this work, there was no training on how to be in the community as a leader working directly with clients. We were trained to work within institutions. We were trained to work within treatment centers and there were interdisciplinary teams. There was due diligence. There was process. There was all of this kind of bureaucracy and rigmarole that really prevented me in my perspective, in my opinion, from doing work that I wanted to do with clients. Um, And, you know, it's even worse in public health um, agencies, um, but it's a little bit better in private institutions. I ended up working at a private rehab here in Toronto and um, ended up, you know, developing and designing their mood and anxiety program in a matter of months. And I know that that is nothing that I could have done um, with within working the Ontario government or uh, a Toronto uh, community agency program. No shade to anyone who is working there. They're doing such necessary work. It's just the wait lists are so long and the capacity to change and evolve with the changing and evolving society is just not there. We're not able to be as reflexive to the to the work and to the needs of a growing population and to a population that's becoming more aware and more demanding of competent and culturally sensitive mental health um, services. So that was kind of, you know, my background. Um, and I, I kind of really, I left my job. Um, I wasn't feeling very good about that job. I left it and I was feeling quite low (laughs) and, um, you know, I didn't have a plan. I did not have a plan. I just kind of quit my job. I talked to my husband and I said, Hey, I need to leave. (laughs) I gotta, I gotta go. (laughs) Um, and you know, he's a gem that man. Um, he really just said to me, you know, it doesn't really matter how hard it's going to be for us. Do what you need to do and we'll figure it out after. And so 
I quit my job and I decided I would figure it out. So I started private practice and I hoped for the best. Maybe, you know, I'd get one or two clients. I could call up some old friends and, you know, say at at the time I thought, you know, I'm just going to get people who graduate from the treatment program that I was just working at and and continue their work in the community. Um, That was not the case. (laughs) I got so busy <laughs> so fast. That's amazing. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just, I put up my psychology today and I think I just closed my phone and my laptop and I went to bed. Like I didn't even think about it. I was just like, Oh, you know, I, I spent time writing a little bio. I made a little Squarespace website. And I was like, this is cute. Like, uh, look, look at, look at Meg. Ooh. <laughs> you know? And so I woke up the next day to so many emails. And then the next day after that, and then the day after that, and I was full, I started my private practice September of 2019 and I was full by, um, end of October. What? So much need. (gasps) Yes. It was crazy how intense everything happened. So I really didn't accept very many clients. I, I can tell you right now, there are some clients, most of the clients that I see now in 2021 are the still the same clients that I started seeing in 2019 fall of 2019 mm. and I and everyone keeps asking me when are you going to accept uh new clients when are you going to do this I was like I swear to god if I had the time and the space and the day to do it I really would because I just I would work 10 hour days right. I would see you know yeah. uh, eight nine ten people a day and you know every hour in therapy is really dedicated to leaning into that person's experience. There's no time to multitask or to do other things during the hour. So I was spending eight, seven, nine, 10 hours every day locked into other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. By the time January, 2020 came about, I was burnt out and I was so overwhelmed that I started to really pull back. I said, okay, I've got to see less people a day. I've got to really just you know, really slow down in order to be effective and to be a better therapist. And so um, that conversation I had with myself really led me to thinking, you know, there's not enough of me. What can I do to expand my services? And so I started working with um, my wonderful supervisor, Dr. Stevenson. He is a proud Cuban psychologist and is um, the first uh supervisor I have I've ever had that identifies as like Latinx or BIPOC. Um, and you know, he's wonderful. We, you know, I call him a friend now and we just started dreaming up ways to serve the community better. And that's how Bloom was born in August of 2020 in the depth of the pandemic. I just, I went for it and here we are. Here we are. How many, how many practitioners do you have working with you? We have nine practitioners working with us now. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And these these counselors, these therapists, these practitioners, these clinicians, are they all folks of color? I think we have one person who doesn't identify as a person of color, um, but eight out of nine um, are... This is unheard of all female, all women identified. Um, 
And, you know, I think it's really important that we acknowledge um, privilege and biases and, and ways that people show up. Psychology and psychotherapy is a completely female dominated profession, which makes sense why most of us would be <laughs> uh, female identifying. Um, but, you know, I think there's room for non-binary therapists. There's room for, yeah. you know, male therapists. There's room for people to really show up and to be their full selves and to, to support the community that needs them. And so there's nine of us, um, all women of color, uh, myself included, three Black women, South Asian <laughs> women, um, Aboriginal, uh, First Nations, biracial women. I'm proud of the community that I've built. I'm proud. Look at what you've done. This is like unheard of. I'm willing to bet that you are one of the only in North America because I've never heard like the cross-section of representation here. I can't wait to see non-binary therapists. I can't wait. Like this is, that community is so underserved in terms of this community, underestimated historically. The new phrase is now historically excluded. Um, You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm here for it. It needs to expand. We all need to have a place where we can feel safe to share our experiences and not have our experiences be, you know, colored by or influenced by white supremacy, but to have the experience be authentic to who we are and, you know, to not have it be influenced by gender norms and all the things that Mm -hmm. are hard for us to be who we are. And almost like therapy is putting you back into the lane where the rest of the world wants you. Whereas now when you have a therapist that looks like you can identify with your lived experience, it makes you feel so free. Like I've never, I've had three or four therapists and with the exception of Dr. Gail and yourself, I've never felt like I can be a hundred percent honest or a hundred percent myself, mm-hmm. which is why I think when I come to therapy with you, I'm just like, and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. I just feel like I'm, and I'm like, like okay, running on a treadmill. <laughs> Well, it's powerful. I'm super honored to hold that space. And, um, you know, before I moved back to Canada, I was working at, I think it's one of the top three largest um, LGBTQIA plus health centers in the world, Fenway Health. I was living in Boston and I was working there and I was running uh, groups and and getting to learn. I I ran an exploring sexuality group and um, I mostly work with youth trans and gender non-conforming youth and supporting them through their gender affirmation surgery, um, through navigating family conflict. A lot of them were homeless and, um, you know, we're, we're really struggling to find safety. Some as young as 12 and, um, my work with them really kind of pushed me into this landscape where one, I wanted to meet the needs of people that didn't feel like they had a space to feel heard. Um, something that people might not know about me is that I'm queer. Like I'm a bisexual black woman therapist. I mean, I'm, you know, straight passing because I have a husband. (laughs) Um, Don't know how that happened. Um, (laughs) If he listens to this, he'll probably laugh. Um, But I think, you know, there is just so much, um, there's like a hidden, 
hidden curriculum for for therapists who don't experience being historically excluded, who don't experience marginalization, who don't experience um, a lack of belonging and a distrust in systems um, to to learn about how to support um, clients of color, how to support um, clients who exist in different sexual and gender um, identities and orientations. And I think, you know, it's, it's important, even if you exist in those margins to continue learning. Yeah. I consider it a deep honor to continue sharpening my craft Mm -hmm. and showing up for people in a way that they, they feel respected and heard. And so um, I really admire what you're doing, really using your voice to to show people that therapy is not as terrifying as they may think it is. And that um, if you are, you know, able to and have the capacity to search because, you know, there's a lot of us out there now. So now you've got to do the work to search to see who's the right fit. Yeah. once you're committed to that journey and you you find someone that you you feel safe with, to kind of just let yourself exhale. Let yeah. yourself exist, feel, do what you need to do, and we're with you in lockstep. It's an incredible, empowering, and dare I say, intentional feeling when you connect with that person who is seeing you and hearing you and allowing you to be yourself and can completely see you for the multi-dimensional person you are and has a similar lived experience so they can actually hear you without you saying, well, you won't understand or what's the point of bringing this up? They're just not going to get what I'm saying. Because, you know, as Black people, we will never know what it is to be white. And as white people, they'll, they'll never know what it means to be Black. So it's, there's in some spaces, it's really necessary to connect with somebody who can attest to your lived experience, which I love. So as we begin to wrap, I can't believe we've been talking for almost an hour. I, I want to always ask people at the end of the podcast, what do you do for your own personal well-being? And what are some tips you could give our listeners about tapping into their own personal well-being, well-being that feeling of well-being, if you will? Mm, what do I do? Well, one thing that I really... Um, I can't stress enough is I just let myself feel what I'm feeling and try not to judge it, try not to shape it or to shrink myself in any way. You know, if you wake up in a bad mood, I will literally say out loud, I'm in a bad mood. Um, I'm not feeling good. Um, And, you know, really allowing myself the the space to announce and to name what I'm feeling has been so empowering for me because I think as a black woman, I've had to perform regulation a lot. I've had to perform feeling well, and sometimes I'm not. So I want to be honest about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second thing that I do is really just boundaries, um, limits, Uh, it's a constant struggle and you know boundaries is such a huge topic that would be a totally different podcast but 
Totally. I really set boundaries with myself. Mm -hmm. I set boundaries with my loved ones. I set boundaries. I set boundaries with my dog. I set boundaries (laughs) (laughs) around my time, my energy, my interest, and I'm always working at it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's one of the things that really clears space for me to do what I love and to do what matters to me. And so those are my two personal wellness tips. Um, other than, you know, the basic activities of daily living, like, you know, making sure that I get a shower, that I stay hydrated, that I try to have at least one or two nutritional meals a day, you know, uh, the things that, you know, keep the engine full. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, for, for people who are really starting this wellness journey, I think a few things that you can maybe start to do is to start to record and to describe what is it that you're experiencing? Tell your story. Mm. Um, I think it's really powerful. Not in, you don't have to think of it as a huge exercise as, oh gosh, I've got to now sit down and write a memoir, biography. Um, I have some clients that prepare PowerPoint presentations before we wow. meet to say, you know, there's a lot that you need to get caught up on. Here's a deck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, that kind of energy is admirable, but not necessary always. Right. right? And so I would say, you know, jot down on your calendar and your daily diary, or even just on your family calendar, like a smiley face or a sad face, or just a mood, um, a feeling, something to record how you're feeling on a day-to-day basis. Because the thing that you will need most to understand what is important for your wellness journey is data. You need to know when you're not feeling great, what patterns, what leads to that, you know, what affects it, um, what things make it better. You know, your therapist might ask you questions. Well, what makes you feel good? Or when do you feel like this? Or, you know, how often have you been experiencing why? And a lot of people are like, well, I'm not sure. I just avoid all of these things because I don't want to have to deal with it. And so addressing the avoidance, really starting to record just even in small ways, what you're experiencing, describing what you're feeling, and keeping a bit of an archive of that is going to be useful data that you can use to improve your habits, to change your boundaries, to, you know, set some clear guidelines for yourself that are not just aspirational, but realistic. It's based in what you've actually done and what really matters to you. Um, And then, you know, another thing I would truly recommend is this is going to be a hard one, but um, we're made to do hard things. We can do (laughs) Accept that your ways of thinking about yourself are rooted in the beliefs and the the doctrines and the um, ideologies of being unwell. Mm, wow. And That's- when you accept that, you will start to settle into this idea that it is a journey and start to manage your expectations about what it might be like for you to start shaping and changing and evolving and growing into who you want to be. Mm -hmm. So many people I see come to therapy and they're like, okay, so we're going to do 10 sessions and 
then, you know, I'm not going to feel depressed anymore. And then I'm going to feel this and I'm going to feel that. And they have just such high expectations um, for themselves that are rooted in these ideas of being unwell. It's rooted in these productivity mindsets. It's rooted in you know, not resting, it's rooted in not feeling, it's rooted in this, you know, performance mindset, I've got to show out and show up as opposed to be me and to stay in the moment. And so I think, you know, even just accepting that learning to be compassionate, and turning towards that, that mindset with a little bit of gentleness, Mm. a little bit of understanding will, will, give you a lot of cognitive and mental room to start thinking about this journey um, with more kindness, with more um, realistic expectation. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad person, you know, slowing down doesn't mean that you won't get there. Mm -hmm. It just means that it's going to take a little bit longer and that's okay. That is okay. I love that. These are all great tips for us to set a course and chart a course for our own well-being. This has been an absolute amazing hour. And I want to thank you again for being my inaugural podcast. The first time I've done a podcast all by my lonesome, all by myself. My pleasure. (laughs) It was amazing with you. And in the show notes, I'll be adding um, your blog, uh, your IG, if people want to follow you on Instagram. Is there anything else uh, you want our listeners to know about you or where they can find you? Yeah, um, I am the resident therapist for Alchemy Health, which is a new uh, mental health platform with on-demand wellness courses and meditations for the culture. Um, You know, I think it's one of those things where you go on headspace and calm and things like that. And you're trying to find your, your wellness routine and it's not really designed for us by us. And so it's a huge part of my, um, my daily life now. And I'm so proud of it. And I would encourage everyone if they're curious to check out alchemy and um, at alchemyhealth.com or their Instagram, which is just alchemy health, A L K E M E. All right. I will link to that in the show notes and I will share that with everybody in the world because I think that's a great resource to have. Once again, Meg Watson, thank you so much for sharing your time and your perspective with me. This has been a wonderful experience. Thank you for being here on the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast. And we're going to keep continuing to work together so that we can all take care of ourselves and find the path to wellbeing. Thanks, everybody. Wow. That was such a great talk. And when it just, it was like getting a therapy session and sharing it with the world. So I want to thank Megan Watson for taking the time to talk to me today and sharing what it means to show up in the world for others. And as you know, I'm a huge proponent of psychotherapy or therapy or talking our feelings out. And I hope you found this podcast helpful and useful on your journey to intentional well-being. If you like the podcast, it would really help us out if you like it, subscribe and comment on Apple Podcasts or anywhere where you're listening to this podcast. Make sure you rate it because it's really helpful for the podcast and it gets it out there to more people. So until next time.